The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. So let's get down to the work this evening. Before we get into our subject for tonight, I just want to reflect a little bit on um, the gathering of the family, which was such an amazing, amazing uh, meeting of God's people. I was able to catch just the end of it. I had to travel last week, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my travel. But I was so imprinted by the words of Reverend Dr. Anthony Cujo last week when he spoke about stretch. Now, when he was speaking about stretch, he was speaking about the tension that is at play that extends a thing. And normally when we think of that tension, we think about the external tension. For example, you can take an elastic band at two ends and it stretches. And so this is what we would consider the tension from without. And as I was thinking about that, I was reflecting on another kind of stretch. So I was at this meeting last week. As I said, I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. But at this meeting, they were talking about the earthquake that's taken place in Turkey and in Syria. And we know that this earthquake has been so destructive, it's been so terrible. The death toll to date, or at least as at yesterday, I don't know what it is today, but it was over 28,000 people dead. That's a huge number of, of, of fatalities. And one of the questions that's being asked about this disaster is why the death toll is so high. Why the death toll is so high. And when you begin to look into it, when you begin to actually read the stories about what happened in Turkey, you find that a lot of the buildings that were constructed weren't built according to standard regulations. There was a lot of cutting of corners. And I think I read in the news yesterday that at least 113 uh, fines have been levied against uh, contractors, building companies, because they didn't follow the law. They didn't build according to standard. Now, of course, we know that concrete and steel and iron rods are not elastic. They don't stretch. But I began to wonder about this thing of, of earthquake-proofing buildings, because you look at some places in the world where Earthquakes happen frequently. You think of countries like Japan, where they're used to earthquakes. One of the other reasons why the earthquake was so devastating in Turkey is because they have not had an earthquake in over 200 years. So they kind of forgot how you build 
with earthquake, you know, with an earthquake orientation. But in Japan, they have earthquakes fairly regularly enough to know that when you're building, you have to build to earthquake proof your construction. And so engineers, not only in Japan, but all over the world, have developed technologies in construction to enable buildings to withstand earthquakes. And so when I looked into this, what I learned is that there are methods that you can actually build a building with to do one of two things. You can either construct a building to give it a flexible foundation. So there's a process called base isolation, where basically instead of building the foundation directly on the earth, they will put three meters of, of separation between the foundation of the building and the actual earth. And that allows the space in between the foundation and the earth to absorb the vibrations or the tension that happens when the tectonic plates begin to grind against one another in an earthquake. So that's one technique that they use. But there's another technique that doesn't focus on the foundation. It actually focuses on the walls or the structure of the building itself, where engineers will seek to redistribute the vibrations. So you see that your car has shock absorbers. Buildings have shock absorbers too, buildings that are built to be earthquake proof. They have a way of, of putting shock absorbers into the walls in order to absorb the vibrations. There's another technique that they use where they essentially put in a huge pendulum in the building. They use this most often for skyscrapers so that when the building begins to sway back and forth, you have the gravity, the weight of the pendulum actually swinging from side to side to kind of stabilize or slow down the vibrations, the, the swinging back and forth, and then you don't get that cracking in the building. So those are all of the, the structural ways that they will use to earthquake proof a building. But there are other ways too, when you look at the kinds of materials that get used in building. These days in these earthquake zones, they build with materials that have high, what we call ductability, meaning that they can undergo large deformations and tension without breaking. In other words, when force hits the buildings, these buildings are designed to stretch from the tension within. So I started off by speaking about the stretching from without when there is an external force that tugs or pulls or extends on you to cause the stretch. And we call that the tension from without. But what I learned from earthquake proof buildings is that these buildings are able to withstand because they are designed to stretch from the inside. They are designed to stretch from the tension within. So the ability to stretch can actually avoid destruction. And if you can get this concept, it can be very powerful. So two kinds of stretch that we're, we're speaking about here, the stretch from the tension without and the stretch from the tension within. And if you find yourself in a situation where the earth around you is shaking with the tectonic plates of your reality are crushing up one to another. You don't have to break. You can rely on the tension within to bend and thus avoid destruction. So I just want 
to plant that idea, and then I want us to go a little bit further. And as I keep meditating on this year of prosperity, what the Lord keeps making me understand is that he's not only prospering us with money, but he's prospering us with men. He's prospering us with men of means, with men of opportunities. He's prospering us with men with whom we can form alliances with. And so tonight I'm compelled to teach on this topic about the power of alliances, the power of alliances. So our text tonight, we're gonna to turn now to the Bible. In our text tonight, we find David on the run. Now David has already had his victory over Goliath. David has been growing in stature and in reputation before all of Israel and Judah. He's had success after success in the military. The women in the villages are singing of his greatness. He's already become Saul's son-in-law. And at this point, Saul is already growing envious and jealous of this young man, David. David has become not only Saul's son-in-law through his marriage to Saul's daughter, Michal, but he's also become best friends with his son, Jonathan, the one to whom the kingdom is supposed to go next. But in our text this evening, we find David now running for his life because Saul has tried to kill him, not once, not twice, and Saul has made himself an enemy to David. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went down to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went into the forest of Hereth. And so we pray, spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us once more this evening. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be gathered in your presence here at the School of Ministry and Leadership. Father, you are the God who takes the poor man and lifts him up and seats him amongst princes. Father, you are the God who says to us that you will increase us as a flock. You will increase us with men as a flock, like the flocks that used to run around Jerusalem in the days of her holy feasts. And so, Father, we know that you are a God who prospers through men. Father, even as we look at this topic this evening, this topic on the power of alliances, may you illuminate this subject for us. May you cause us to appreciate what it means to build alliances with all kinds of men. 
May you equip us, Lord, give us discernment to know who men are. Give us understanding, Lord, and openness to forge new kinds of relationships. We know, Father, that you don't come down from heaven anymore to bless, but you bless through men. And therefore, Lord, may we be open to the men to whom you are sending in our lives, just as you will bless us to be door openers and way makers for others. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you are already at work doing this evening. And we pray, Lord, that this blessing tonight will not be in vain, but that we will maximize it for your glory alone. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. So let's first define alliances. What am I talking about when I speak about an alliance? An alliance is a treaty. It's a union or an association between nations or between individuals for their mutual advantage. An alliance is a relationship that's based on similarity of interests, of nature or of qualities. And finally, an alliance is the state of being joined or associated together. And so in our text this evening, there's something curious that we might miss if we're unfamiliar with David's story or if we've just forgotten it. So we see that David is on the run here. He goes to Gath. So he goes into Philistine territory and he's living in caves. Now, my reading told me that the cave at Adulam is like a series of small caves in a labyrinth all together. So a networked set of entrances into the rock face. It would have been an easy place to hide and a difficult place to penetrate if you were the enemy. So David's hiding here for safety because Saul wants to kill him. And Saul, of course, being the king of Israel has the totality of the Israel army on his side. And as David is hiding out in these caves, his family comes to him, his brothers, his father. Other men who had heard of David's exploits, but who were considered to be the wretched of the earth, unwanted, marginalized men come and decide that they're going to join themselves to David's cause. Now you can imagine if you're already a wretch, you're already an outcast or an outsider, you find yourself an outcast king and decide that you're going to join his army. So these 400 men come and join David there. And so David is in Philistine territory. And then he goes over to the king of Moab. So an enemy king. And David says, I've got my mom and my dad here with me and they can't stay in Israel for their own sake. Will you give them shelter? Will you keep them safe from harm? All of this to say that David finds himself not in a good place. And so if we just take the text at face value, we'll, we'll miss something. We'll miss the fact that at this time, David is on the run. And who is he running from? He's running from his king. So he's running from his authority. He's running from his, his boss. He's also running from the commander in chief of the national army. As I said, David's got the whole army of Israel now against him. 
but he's also running away from his father-in-law. So David's got this triple, this triple problem. Meanwhile, at this point, David had already been anointed and he had already been promised the kingdom of Israel. What I'm trying to say is, is that David's physical circumstances are as far away as can be from the promise that he's carrying. And so what he is seeing in his day-to-day -day life is not matching what he had heard when the prophet anointed him king over Israel. And it gets very, very easy for us to forget the promises of God for our lives when we're being pursued. And believe me, the enemy will make sure that threats pursue you. He'll send confusion and dismay after you. He'll send delay and frustration after you. The devil's dogs are going to make you forget that goodness and mercy are following you every day. And so as I was taking the words of Reverend Cujo about the stretching that we have to do, this is where this stretch comes into this teaching, that it's not simply the tension from without that pulls on you. It's not simply the tension from the external forces that stretch on you and demand that you extend but it's also the tension from within that will stabilize you and prevent destruction when the earth is shaking beneath you. So David finds his world shaking. And yet, even in his physical moving about, even in his displacement, even in his fugitive status, he's able to maintain a stability because he's got these shock absorbers within him. And we're gonna look at those in a moment. So don't forget that you as a leader are carrying God's promise, even when you see the world shaking around you, even when your day-to-day -day circumstances don't match the promise that you've been given. So when we look at this text, what does David show us? We see that David builds four lines of alliance, four lines of alliance. Line number one, he builds it with his family. Now, last week we spoke of gathering of the family, of course. It's interesting to see it again here this week, that this scripture starts with the gathering of David's family, that in all of the people who are listed, who come to David at the cave of Adullam, it's his brothers and his father's household that are mentioned first. And last week we made the point that there comes a moment in the transition from family to nation where the way of leading has to change. And that's what we see here, that indeed we're at this transition point before Judah is going to take over the throne of Israel. And so God still bases this transition moment on the alliance formation of the family, on this gathering of the family. And even as we made the point last week that Jacob's family was not a holy family, we see again that David's family also was not free of worry. We know that his brothers envied him. We know that his father forgot him. And yet we see that at the moment of leadership transition, when the house of Jesse is about to become a nation, we see this, father, this, this, this family gathering together. And so the point that I want to make here is that if you are going to be the leader of something great, you'll need an alliance. David needed his family in this moment of leadership transition, and you're gonna to need to build an alliance with a family also. 
So David's brothers and his cousins and his uncles and his nephews come to him at Adulam. And so this actually helps us to understand when we flip a few pages over and we see David after Ziglag, you remember that after his victory at Ziglag, what does David do? He sends a portion of the plunder to all of his family, remember? And if you read chapter, what is that? Chapter 30, I think. If you read chapter 30 without having read chapter 22, you might wonder, what is David doing sending all of this, all of these gifts and sharing the plunder with all of Judah, all of his uncles and all of, all of the people who many years earlier had seemingly rejected and forgotten him? Now we understand the reason why he shares the plunder with them is because they stood by him in difficulty. They joined him at Adulam and therefore they share in the portion after Ziglag. The next thing we see in this scripture about David and the alliance he forms with his family is that he honors his elderly mother and father by relocating them out of Israel for the duration that Saul is after him. Now, this might not only be a safety issue. We don't know whether, we don't know how extreme Saul would have been. Would Saul have gone after David's parents and, and assassinated them? We don't know. But it was just as likely that this was a reputational issue. David didn't want his elderly mother and father worrying about him, so he gets them out of the country. And what I find personally interesting about this scripture, something little, but these are the joys that we get when we're reading the Bible, is that this is one of the very few places where David's mother is mentioned. She's mentioned in the verse 3, where David asks the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you? So one of the very few times that we, say, we see David's mother mentioned at all in scripture but we see here that in her old age, David is caring for her. We don't know what the status of her relationship was with David's father at that point, but he takes them both and he settles them. He forms an alliance for their sake. So the first line of alliance that David forms is with his family. The second line of alliance that David forms is with his followers. And again, we, we see this point that the people aren't holy, but God can use them anyway. So these wretched of the earth gather themselves together and show up to David in the cave at Adulam. And yet we see them over time as they are refined through the fires of war, as they are refined under David's leadership, that this ragtag bunch of outcast men become an army of mighty men. The third line of alliance that David forms is with other leaders. So we see him going to the king of Moab and petitioning him for his security over his parents. The point here is, is that as a leader, you will need the resources of others. And so there's a story told of a little boy who is struggling to lift a very large piece of wood from off of the pathway that he wants to cross. And his father was standing by the side, quietly watching him as he struggles. And then the father asks the little boy why he isn't using all of his strength. And the little boy, a little annoyed, turns to the father and says, but dad, I am using all my strength. And the father replies, no, son, you're not. You haven't asked me to help you yet. 
And so the effective leader knows how to reach beyond himself for strength. The effective leader is able to discern and use the strength or the resources of the people around them. The effective leader is able to develop alliances with those who are on their team, but also those who are on other teams. And so this is why David is able to go to Moab of all places. We know that Moab was the enemy of Israel. And yet at this point, David finds himself able to enlist the help of the king of Moab for the sake of his parents. And then the fourth alliance that David sets is with the words of God. We see the prophet Gad giving David an instruction. Gad instructs David to no longer stay at the cave at Adullam, but to actually leave that place. He calls it the stronghold. Leave that place and go to the forest at Hareth. And what we see is that David, in fact, obeys the prophet. What's interesting is, is that the prophet tells David that the time is up for hiding and that he is to go into the land of Judah. And David obeys. David leaves the structural safety of Adullam and he goes out into the land of Judah. But David doesn't just go anywhere in Judah. He goes to the forest at Hareth. And what I learned when I studied this, and this is, I want you to pay attention because this is actually kind of amazing. What I learned is that Hareth is a place in the mountains of Judah. And though the scripture calls it a forest, in the verse five, it says that he goes to the forest of Hareth. In actuality, Hareth was a desert place. It's a barren, dry, parched land with very little vegetation. Now the Hebrew word for Hareth means harsh place. So David leaves security, he leaves safety, and he willingly goes into a harsh place. What's interesting is that this word, hareth, is similar to another Hebrew word, which is the word heruth. And heruth means freedom. So how can these words be related? Harsh place, freedom. Harsh place, freedom. What's the connection here? So what becomes fascinating is that Jewish tradition has it, that Psalm 23, that Psalm that I know we all know so well. For many of us, it's the first part of the Bible that we actually become familiar with when we're unbelievers and we hear it. Psalm 23 is, is the, the patch of, of Bible that most people know. And Jewish tradition has it that David wrote Psalm 23 when he was out at Hareth. In other words, at the time of immense pain, when David is on the run, when David is a fugitive, when David finds himself in a barren, dry, desert 
harsh place, he finds freedom. David is walking on the ground at Hareth, and he's able to say that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So David is walking in this barren place, and he's able to remember the green pastures of his boyhood when he found himself all alone, no mother, no father, no siblings, just the sheep that no one else wanted to look after. He didn't have a roof, he didn't have a bed, but he had this green pasture that his Lord laid out for him every night. David says he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So David's on the run. He's figuring that now that he's returned to the mountains of Judah, he's out in the open, Saul can get at him so easily. And yet David is able to confess that the Lord leads him beside still waters, that the earth is shaking around him, that the ground is moving beneath his feet. And David is able to focus on the tension within that is redistributing all of this stress, redistributing all of this angst. And David shall not be moved. And he says, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David is roaming the forest at Hareth and he says, yea, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet I shall fear no evil. Now David hasn't heard from God at this point. He said in the scripture, let us wait and see what the Lord will do for me. And yet he confesses here that I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me still. And David has left the palace. David probably hasn't had a good meal in a long time. David doesn't know when he's going to get back to any semblance of security or stability. And yet he confesses that thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And David's been on the run for a long time. And yet he remembers the moment when the prophet was sent to anoint him king over Israel. And David knows that if the word of the Lord unto him at that time was that he would be king, David is able to hold on to the weight of that glory and remind himself that thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. That God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, shall he not do it? 
So David is carrying this promise that he has not yet seen, but he remembers that the Lord anointed him and therefore his cup shall run over. And despite the fact that the devil is doing his best to send his dogs after him, David does not think about the pursuit. He does not think about those who are chasing him. He says, surely, goodness, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And David ends his confession with a promise unto himself. And he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. So this is the freedom that David finds in the harsh place at Hareth. His world is shaking around him. The tectonic plates of his reality are grinding up one another and they could create all kinds of destruction, but within his spirit, he is stable. He is stretching from the tension within. He's holding on to God's promise for him. And so we see this repeatedly in the Bible that God has a way of feeding his leaders in the desert. We can ask Moses, we can ask Elijah. And Psalm 23, now that we understand it, lets us know that we can ask David also. So why are alliances so important? Well, David couldn't be on the run forever. He wasn't going to be able to be a fugitive forever. At some point, Saul is gonna catch up with him. The time will come when David has to face Saul. David has to fight Saul whether he wants to or not, because remember, David never wanted to go on the offensive with Saul. David never wanted be, David never wanted to be the one to strike first. But David understood that the battle demands an army, even if you're on the defensive. And so in order to build defenses, you need alliances. And so David was building these alliances for the day of trouble. And we need to know this, you and I, because as you lead, and especially as you come to the point of promotion, you need people. You're gonna need people to sponsor you. You're gonna need people to vote for you, or you're gonna need people to work for you. And so you need to learn how to build your networks. And this is what my travel last week let me meditate on that your network grows as you add people to it. So you add people in terms of number and you add people in terms of value. And you've probably heard the saying that your net work is your net worth. That the more people and the more people of, of high value, and it's not that we want to devalue those who are of average or mediocre or no value. But the point is, is that there are some people who have to be door openers. There are some people who have to be at the level above you so that they can lift you up. And you need those people in your network. You need high powered 
contact. Now, as we study leadership over and over again, you notice that we regularly come back to look at David. David was such an effective leader for so many reasons. But tonight, what we're seeing, one of the things that David did very well, which we need to learn, is David knew how to make alliances. David knew how to build his networks. And effective leaders have that ability, that ability to build alliances with people who can help you advance your cause. And so part of your job as a leader is to intentionally build your network because whatever the next thing you have to do or you want to do or the next places you have to get to, they cannot be achieved, they cannot be reached with the people you currently know. And so this is true of promotion, this is true of sponsorship, this is true of church planting, it's true of evangelism. Whatever you're doing now, the next thing that you need, you need the next people in order to accomplish that. So remember, as we were speaking about systems last week, we were talking about systems being the totality of the interactions between the agents and the structures of the system, between the people and between the things that hold or order or organize those people together, be they histories or procedures or capacities or norms, values, whatever. And so within the system, if we're talking about the system being the result of all of those interactions, those interrelationships, then it makes sense we can conclude that Within a system, the more connections within the system with, with people who are diverse, with people who have high value connections, the more interactions there is a stabilizing effect, the more robust and the more resilient that system becomes. So again, we're just thinking of this notion of earthquake proofing the system, that you're building in interactions within the system to redistribute the vibrations so that when a force hits, it's able to absorb the shock. It's able to send the vibrations to other parts of the structure of the system so that it might bend, it might sway, but the force is not enough to break it. The thing that we need to know is, is that building alliances cost. It's not free network. Networking is not free. It takes time. And oftentimes the fruit of that networking is seen only in the passage of time. You're cultivating allies. Allies are the fruit of the alliances and allies have to be cultivated like fruit over a long time. And so all of this is to say that building networks is a key leadership skill. It's a skill that you have to develop. If you're not a great networker at the moment, don't worry. It's a skill that you can build. You can develop it. You can practice it until you, you see it maturing, getting better, getting stronger. But it's a skill that you need to work on if you're going to be an effective, powerful, progressive leader. So I want to make the fifth and the final point about David and David's alliances. So we see in the text, the four lines of alliances that David makes. 
Number one, with his family. Number two, with his followers. Number three, with other leaders. And number four, with the word of God. But fifth and finally, David reveals to us his greatest alliance. So Bible scholars tell us that Psalm 23 was penned when David was in the forest at Hereth. Bible scholars also teach us that Psalm 142 was penned when David was in the cave at Adullam. So if I turn to Psalm 142, it's not very long, so I'm going to read it. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint, before I tell him my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watches over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Amen. So here's something interesting. We see all of these human alliances that David is so intentional and so effective at working. But isn't it amazing that despite these human alliances, David is loyal to others, he leads men, they come to him, he still feels utterly, utterly alone. And it's only God who can help him. So when we take our time and we look at this psalm, in the verse four and five, he says, look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. And yet, is this really true? If we turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15, we're speaking about the men who gathered to, to David, the 400. What do we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15? we actually see the account of some of these who became David's mighty men. And the chronicler tells us, he says, three of the 30 chiefs came down to David to the rock at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the Valley of Raphaim. At that time, at that time, let me turn the page properly, at that time, at that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, oh, 
that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back, David would not drink it. And then the Chronicle goes on to name these men. It was Abishai and Joab and Benaiah, the son of Joahida. So why did I read that? I read that because you have at least three of these 400 men who would give their lives for David. They risked death to bring him a drink of water. And yet David still feels alone. We make this point because as a leader, I do not want you to be surprised that you will lead others and you will care for others and others will love you in return. And yet you will still feel hungry. You will still feel thirsty. That we form alliances because God has commanded us to care for one another. But ultimately, our souls can only be satisfied with the bread of life. Ultimately, our souls can only be satisfied with the river of living waters, that is Jesus. And many of us get disappointed as leaders because we expect people to be able to fill this craving in us that only God can fill. And so know that as a leader, you will be celebrated, you will be lifted. The people who you lead will expect you to feed them and you have to feed them. As a leader, that's your job. But don't make the mistake of getting your bread from the people. And so we see this final point in the New Testament. Remember the mystery of the bread and the fish. The multitude came to Jesus with no food. And he turns to his disciples, he turns to his leaders in training, and he says, you give them to eat. And so we see Jesus lift up the bread and the fish and thank God and then distribute. And we know the story that the crowds were fed and when the disciples gathered up the fragments, there were 12 baskets left. We have to assume that at that time, the disciples ate also. They had also been out in the wilderness with Jesus for all that time that he taught. And if the crowd were hungry, it's very likely that they were hungry also. But we know that the disciples weren't fed by the crowd. The disciples were fed by the power of Jesus. And that's the same power that is available to you and I as we lead for him. The disciples had an alliance with Jesus. And even as they did his work, and even as they led his people, and did so joyfully, they didn't rely on the people to feed them. They relied on the power of Jesus. So I pray for you. I pray that you will grab the power of forming alliances. I pray that you will appreciate and understand the people whom God is sending into your life, 
that you will nurture and cultivate these relationships, not just for today, but for the future, believing that there is a next opportunity, an open door, a blessing behind the person. And that as you form these alliances, you are not doing it for selfish gain, but you are doing it believing that God uses men to bless and believing that you are also a part of someone else's network and that if you avail yourself, God will use you also to bless. In the name of Jesus, amen.